Hello, everyone. Welcome to another day in the endless sticky morass that is 2020, where time all sort of seems to melt into itself and becomes a flat circle with no beginning and no end. Uh, I'm uh, half of the hosts of this podcast, uh, Nicholas Lorimer, and I'm joined by Mr. Gabriel Krauser. Gabriel, how are you? I'm the other amorphous, flat, nebbish, <laughs> multi, schmalty half of this podcast. How's it, everyone? Welcome to Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree. Yes, um, it's it's been a it's been an interesting week for me. I've just been extremely tired for some reason, and I can't really work out why. I think it might be uh, spring. I'm not I'm not a a creature that does well in heat, so uh, this is this is the the sudden appearance of warm, lovely weather is probably what's sapping all of my energy. Uh, how have you been, Gabriel? It might also be the fact that this time last week we're shooting this on a Sunday. Julius Malema was issuing an attack order. Uh, which was oh, yes. basically followed by the fire, by the petrol bombing of pharmacies and 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 setting someone fire, uh, which is which is really amazing. There's not a lot of places like a couple of podcasts ago. We were talking. We asked the question: Is South Africa really a country? And part of the reason was that uh, protesters had moved. They'd found the root cause problem in society. They'd been burning down. Uh, various municipal buildings, putting uh, burning tires on roads, and and they figured out the real issue was the fire station, which kept putting out the fires. <laughs> yes. So they burned down the fire station. Because <laughs> they'll be forced to take the issue of fire seriously if we burn down the fire station. And then I thought that was like peak IQ. Like I thought we've really like we've really got a great root cause analysis going here. And then we move to pharmacies. Like the real issue in society is that there are places that people can buy medicine. Uh, let's stop that. And th- I, th- that definitely has made me feel tired. That's one of the things that's made me feel. Oh uh, yeah, no, I'm 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 definitely at least wearied at part as a sort of soul soul tiredness, not necessarily a physical tiredness. Yeah, indeed. But there has been good news, I must say. Um, there always is. I. I, I, I don't know how to really broach this because it's it's complicated and there's a long history to it. But from a personal point of view, I joined the Institute of Race Relations two years ago now, and I was very excited to do that. It was the only place that I could find, and I looked everywhere that I could. <laughs> Beg your pardon. It was the only place that I could find that would. Uh, Put, put wheels underneath my feet and put gas in my tank to go out into Ikutuleni, one of the most impoverished rural parts of KZN. Yeah, and, to, and write those uh, fun, exciting, long pieces that uh, are your, yeah, your best work. To, to trace down the story of, of these Lutheran Zulus who'd been burnt out of their own home with the assistance of the police uh, by a Zulu MP led by uh, a, a really nasty chap who has been accused of assassinating people and all other kinds of things in search of uh, of raw minerals, raw mineral rights, and more flock to his herd to pay him tribute. And uh, it, just, it just didn't suit the narrative. So, you know, a lot of publications uh, were like not interested, but the Institute was. And part of the reason that the Institute was is that it, you know, on one level, the, the narrative that it's interested in is truth on another level, it does have principles and values, and those values are classical liberalism. Those values are equality for all people before the law. Uh, for a state that is limited 
and that protects the vulnerable, protects everyone uh, from the predacious. And I think that something momentous happened in the last week for classical liberals in South Africa, which is that two parties, uh, one which uh, barely exists in anything but name, but has a lot of uh, momentum to its enthusiasm, which is Action SA, led by Herman Mashaba, and the other, which is the second largest party in the country, which has three and a half, four million votes behind it, the Democratic Alliance, both spoke out in favor of equality before the law and against laws that discriminate on the basis of race. And I think that's, I, I think that's amazing. I think that is, uh, when I started at the Institute, I, I gave myself some key performance indicators, some things to to test, not my own performance individually, because this is so much bigger than any particular person, uh, but but to test the health and the progress of classical liberalism in this country. And one of them was that. One of them was like, how soon and how sincerely do we get to the point where major political parties are speaking out in favor of, of equality before the law? And, and, and when I started, it, it was only COPE. And now, and, and COPE, and, you know, m much as I love that party, <laughs> it only had uh, like 60,000 yeah. votes, 80,000 votes behind it. And the DA has has millions. And uh, I don't think those millions are going to leave the party. But uh, for now, well, the, there are at least three and a half million other... people represented by the party. And they and they spoke out for, for value, I, I think, is great. I think it's really great and it's good news. The, the other wonderful thing is, of course, that this happened right as the rest of the world seems to be sort of turning headlong down the path of racialism, um, as we've seen over the last couple of months as this sort of BLM uh, stuff and, you know, uh, critical race theory, all those things have kind of really burst the, the dams of the institutions they were kind of being kept in and have really flowed out into the society in a very big way. Yeah, indeed. We are at so the more, we're we're, we're at the far end of it. We are like uh, we're cutting edge, man. We were we were we were we were toppling statues and trying to get people off the uh, high school and university syllabus on the basis of their race. Uh, years ago, the, the rest of the world is just following our our efforts. We are in fact world leaders in this particular field. Yeah, and I so think I think that, that our listeners should pass. seriously. Yeah. People should seriously consider the possibility that what the DA and Action SA are doing right now is cutting edge, is historic on a South African and on a global level, that they are at the cutting edge of, of something very exciting and very good, a kind of a, a reversion to, to, to a centrist respect for, for, for people as people and not as representatives of phenotypical groups. I think that's now, great. I, but there is obviously am, some tension here, hey? Yeah. Uh, one of the things uh, to point out, and, and I suspect that of the two of us, you're the more pro-action essay and I'm the more anti-action essay. Um, and I think that, well, we'll see, but I, I'm not sure that they've established their credentials in quite the same way necessarily as to where they stand on this issue. Uh, it will. It remains to be seen is what I'm saying. Um, although, they, of course, they have made some indications that this is the way that they're going to go. Right. So, 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 so I suppose part of what I want to talk about today is riffing off of a Daily Friend podcast that Nicholas and I did uh, earlier in the week. 
and Nicholas yeah. read out a public, uh, an article in IOL uh, about the DA versus Action SA. And and this was in in the midst of I must say one of the one of the most bizarrely disappointing but unsurprising weeks in South African mainstream media, where <laughs> as Gareth van yes. Orslen pointed out, not a single like lead editor or senior columnist uh, said anything nice about the DA's policy. The general no, it line as, it was it was as though they had just endorsed apartheid. It was crazy the way yes. people reacted to them. Yeah. And the general line, so the general line really reminds me, we like to talk a bit about history, uh, about Oedipus, Re, about Oedipus uh, the, one of the great um, Attic plays and, and myths. And, and the story with Oedipus was that he'd been looking upon his mother's body with lust, been sleeping with his mother, but he didn't realize that. And then when he realized that, he pulled her jewelry, her earrings, down from the sort of bedroom wall and stabbed out his own eyeballs so that he may never look upon her again. A lot of people don't realize that most Greek tragedies end in death, but Oedipus actually just ends in that act of self-blinding. And and there are actually two sequels, uh, Oedipus at Colonus, and he sort of appears in in, uh, Oedipus, uh, in the Seven Armies Oedipus of Peace. In, Oedipus incest harder. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's no more incest. He's on his eyes up. And he becomes a very wise man. It's sort of a redemption tale. Like, you, you know, after that, you can actually survive. But first, you need to stab your eyes out so that you can, because it's so taboo. It's so revolting. And I think we all, I think we all feel that. It's such a natural thing to mm. empathize with Oedipus for doing that. It feels like the right thing to do. Like your optometrist yeah. might disagree, but it's like at a very deeply human <laughs> level, I think it's the right thing to days. do. <laughs> he's gonna he's gonna probably be able to make some bank off of the reconstructive eye surgery, but you know what I mean. You know, it is a little early for that, but I hear you. But so the thing is, the the general response really was that non-racialists think like Oedipus. They think race, it's so taboo to see someone else's race, to see some look at someone's skin and notice that it has a color, that what you have to do is pull down the earrings and stab your eyeballs out and become blind, uh, color blind, race blind, uh, dismiss race, well, pretend it doesn't exist, pretend it makes no difference. It's, like this it's, is, it's so it's taboo. Most, it's one of the most ridiculous straw men I think I've ever seen. Um, and and yeah. there was, we were, we were, we were made witness to a, to the, to the sort of senior writers and editors just pretending like they didn't know how to read things. Were, uh, so, so the argument for non-racism goes something like, uh, or at least in the DA's policy of redress, if you help poor people to get better economic opportunities, because most poor people are black, it will, by definition, help m mostly black people. Right. This is this is the argument they've made uh, for supporting their redress. I'm with you and so yet, far. Where, where am I going? <laughs> what am I yet, missing here? We we had reporters saying, well, they they can't see race in their policy, but suddenly they can see race when it comes to helping people. I don't understand the logic of this. So so this is a really good example of of a concept that we spoke about, I think, in our very first podcast, which is the epistemology game. Uh it's a it's a it's a sort of term I coined back when I was a philosophy student. Uh, when I noticed, so epistemology is the study of knowledge, and I noticed that like from Descartes, a lot of philosophers were like, 
you know, I want to try and pretend I don't know anything and then see what I can figure out, right? And so it seemed to me yeah. like there was a certain strand of philosophy that was an epistemology game. Like the less you can pretend you know, the more you're winning. So Descartes doesn't know if he's Descartes. He doesn't know if there's a table in yeah. front of him. He doesn't know if he's really writing down. He doesn't know if any other people exist. And he's so winning because he pretended to know so little that like 500 years later, everyone still knows his name. So he won the epistemology game. The rules of the epistemology <laughs> game is the less you know, the more you win. Okay. And I noticed that like, you know, in some friendship circles, in some relationship situations, you know, it's really helpful to play the epistemology game. Uh, did you see him looking at her, but she's not his girlfriend? What's going on? No, if you like all pretend you don't know, then you're like, oh, what are you talking about? Then you can seem like you're winning. Dude, this has been like an entire country's media elite playing and winning the epistemology game. Like we pretend not to understand the very basics. And so we get lots of likes from a lot of race nationalists who who, who just don't want to consider the possibility of non-racialism. But there is a very basic point to, to address here to spell out. I think I've made fun of philosophy, but I think there's also some, something very, very useful <laughs> about abstract basic principles. And one of the abstract basic principles that you can find many e medieval uh, people writing about under the, the theory of many hats, um, and, and later is more technically written about under uh, frames of reference, conceptual schemes, uh, and so on, is, is this idea that we sometimes neglect to take some factors to be important because we're considering other factors to be of a higher priority. And this really is the beginning of law, of understanding the rule of law. And right. anyone so who's give, hung give out with an example of that. So I have hung out with several judges and they've all told me the same story. At some point or another, I have declared a person not guilty, even though personally I think he's guilty. The reason right. that I'm saying not guilty, even though personally I really do believe this guy's guilty, is because I'm bound by duty to consider the evidence in a certain way, to consider a certain threshold of doubt that has to be crossed, and that has failed to happen. So in some cases, the state, there was the 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 chain of custody and a bit of evidence was broken, and the defense introduced reasonable doubt. In some cases, the police broke into a place to find evidence, but uh, they didn't have a warrant. In some cases, the prosecuting authority just pursued a line of argument that didn't make sense, even though the judge thinks there's another line of argument that would have made sense, but they didn't make that argument. In other cases, the prosecuting authority uh, asked for, you know, charged under what Americans would call murder in the first degree, and the evidence just isn't good enough for that. But if they'd gone for murder in the second degree, or, you know, uh, manslaughter, then the evidence would have been strong enough for that. And, the, and there are versions of this in, divorce, in, in, in family law. There are versions of this in corporate right, law. So is, when, we, when we talk about people getting off on a technicality, we mean this. Yeah. And, 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 and it's a very simple idea. And it's also a very simple idea of doctors, you know. I was speaking to a doctor 
halfway through lockdown who had a friend who wanted to who, who who was sniveling and he'd taken a test and it looked like he was negative but he wasn't sure and he wanted to go to his daughter's wedding which was a very small affair 12 people but it was still a bit of a mission and he had to fly and he said should i do this and he said as your doctor i i feel like it's my duty to say no but as your lifelong friend we're both in our 50s like dude i think you're going to regret it for the rest of your life if you don't go so as your friend i'm saying yes you should go and as your doctor i'm saying no you shouldn't go uh that that kind of judge i feel like everyone understands that i feel like everyone knows yeah. a little bit what it is to take on a you know to put on a different hat and the non-racialism thing first and foremost is just the claim that when you're putting on the hat of being a judge that you shouldn't be saying well depending on your race i'm going to be harsher or more lenient on you or depending on your race i think you deserve to be promoted or you deserve not to get a job as a legislator, when you're putting on that hat, you shouldn't be like saying this. People yeah, we're gonna treat who look these like people this better than these people. Like in your private life, knock yourself out. If you want to have a bri with people who only look like you or people who only don't look like you, that you know, I think that's that's a different thing, and non-racialism also touches on that. But as a legal policy, which is what the DA's policy first and foremost is. And what opposition to be first and foremost is. It's very simple. It's just saying when you put on your hat of making laws or administering the law, adjudicating the law, or executing the law as a police, you really shouldn't be uh, doing it differently based on what color a person's skin is. It's, it's as simple as that. And to pretend that you don't get it, then people aren't stupid. Like, Yeah, it, it's, it's they, even worse. They, it's not that they don't like get it. They're just, they're just playing an epistemology game. They're just being Descartes. It's, they're just being like, I don't know if this is really uh, <laughs> a sunrise or a sunset. How can I tell? <laughs> you know, it's it's even worse because actually almost every single one of these 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 people subscribed to this theory of race relations up until a couple of years ago when suddenly it became fashionable to flip. And then they pretended like they had never... Never heard of this concept of non-racism. What strange crypto-fascist right-wing idea is this born out of? I, I can't even possibly imagine how anyone could be so insane as to think that race is not important. Yeah, literally, like one of one of the columns that I read in the Daily Maverick by their senior political correspondent said they must have gotten this idea from Donald Trump. <laughs> Yes, Donald Trump. Donald Trump, who has said things like, you know, this guy can't judge on my case because he's Mexican, right? <laughs> this is yeah. apparently the font of non-racialism. <laughs> Dude, it's just, it's, 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 it's an insult to everyone's intelligence. And it's amazing. It's amazingly bold. Like, I've got to say, I respect these guys for just being so bold uh, and so... And so doubtless in themselves. And and so kudos yeah. to, to them for that. Uh, but it's bloody awful. And it, it, it could be driving a very important move uh, into the into the gutter. I don't think it will. I, I think most people are really gonna see through it. But but I but do honestly, but I think yeah, there's sorry, a much more think, interesting point. Yeah. yeah. I think a lot of people don't you know, the, these 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 publications are really far more uh, restricted to a particular slice of the middle class nowadays in terms of their reach. So their ability to sort of overwhelmingly determine the conversation is not what it was uh, a couple of decades ago. Okay, if if we follow our plan, we're going to come back to this point and say why, why while that is true, 
Um, it's not unimportant. The middle class isn't unimportant. But first, I want to say where I think there is a real tension. And this is where a lot of people are going to disagree. And that's why I think it's important to talk about. It. And it's race pride. Uh, and so this is not the legal thing. This is not when you put on your hat to be a judge or a policeman or a legislator. This is this is when you're hanging out. And 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 this seems to be the real difference between Action SA and the DA. And this is what you were bringing up on the Daily Friend podcast that I alluded to earlier. You right. read this IOL piece, and basically Herman Mashaba was saying exactly the same things as Gwen and Gwenya, the head of the DA policy uh, brains trust, and uh, both were saying. Uh, Redress yeah. must not be based on on race. Basically, was what yeah. was what Mishawa's policy. Although he did add the caveat, uh, which we must mention, uh, that they were still deciding on what precisely their policy was going to be. So yeah. this They're may still change. Figure it out. Yeah. So from an economic point of view, I mean, Gwen and Gwen, you pointed this out. She's like, you know, uh, the poorest of the poor, ninety nine percent black. You know, insofar as our policies are helping those people out, like the the only way to right now, the problem is that. Since 19, since 2015, 51% of income has gone to black people. The largest slice, 25% of any particular subsection has gone to the top 10 black income earners, whereas the top 10% white income earners only got 10%. So the top 10% of black people got two and a half times as much as top 10% of white people. And, and that's not to say that there aren't more black people than white people. It's just to say that in terms of the worries about wealth in wealth distribution across races which is that you'll have statistical or taste-based discrimination uh where you know if 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 all the rich people are white then it might be harder yeah, to only become rich as a pay for, because yeah yeah they're they're only they're only pay for things provided by white, white people, people and see shows made by white people etc etc yeah so that's just not the case at all in this country it's it, it's the other way around and it's also which, not the case that 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 politically, Which, to be fair, you know, the, the other worry is the political lobby. Is that you know, if you've got a particular, like in America, the worry for for a long time has been like, if white people are richer and the majority, then they can just keep voting in white governments that are going to, in subtle ways, create laws that oppress black people. Like that's right. definitely not a worry here. But so those you know, are the you two didn't main. Need to, you didn't need to look at the statistics to see this. Like if you just watch TV and you see adverts and who they're trying to sell products to, you know, often elite products. Uh, yeah, yeah, you can be like, ah, uh, you know, it, it doesn't look like only white people are the target market here. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the problem is our elite uh, journalists and editors and, and so-called thought leaders don't actually go to the, aren't cool enough to be invited to the calendar events. I've been to, Saf to the South African Film and Television Awards. I've been to the South African Music Awards. I've been to the Janusburg Art Fair, the largest art fair in the, on the continent. You know, that's when you've got people flying in on private jets to come and check out the glitz and be on TV and sport their diamonds and go and have cocaine after the after party and uh, and, and where you get Hollywood celebrities and so on. This is quite Dude. the humble yeah, no, I I was a form. I was I, I was uh, that was my job was to was to hang out with the, with the most rich, famous, influential, artsy fartsy kinds of people that I could, uh, for a couple of years before I joined the Institute of Race yeah. Relations, and it was and it was so not a white dominated crowd. Um. So okay, so, but but this is all to say that if you if you want a policy that directs redress at the poor. Then you know one percent of that pub, of 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 those poor people are going to be white. So if Herman Mashaba at a policy level wants to make sure that it's still black centric, then he's going to have to say the first qualification is that you're black, and then the second qualification is that you're poor. 
to just get rid of that 1%. And that's going to seem so vindictive and nasty that I think it's going to be a very hard trick to pull that off. So I think the real differentiator between Action SA and the DA is not going to be at the level of policy. I think the Action SA is going to remain very vague on the policy for as long as they can. Uh, also because they don't have the infrastructure to, to you know, it's a very new thing. Uh, I think the real differentiator yeah, but- is esteem. <laughs> that old devilish concept. Um, yeah. I, I, yeah, exactly. And and I think this is the point you made, which is that uh, uh, Action SA, and you can see this from the way they talk about, and in fact, in that same article, the way that that uh, that um, Mashaba talks about the DA, he says that they don't see black people. And I think the word see there is doing a lot of work. It's sort of like... No, no, no. Uh, it's like he, a stand- no, no, no. Nick, it's more precise. He says... They don't see us as black people. Yes, of course. Um, they don't see us as black people, and there's a lot of there's a lot of work being done there. They don't see the the true sort of race esteem team that we all belong to here, and how we need to be boosting that, rather than just you know lifting people out of poverty. There's like a sort of spiritual emotional component to the whole thing as well. Correct, and and so this as I I think it's really important, you know, try and reflect on your own life. Have you ever said speaking as a white person? No, I've um, just given. I've, yeah. I, think I've, I think I may have said that as a joke before, but <laughs> I, I have definitely said speaking as a fat person, but that was mostly just me taking the Mickey out of uh, taking the Mickey out of that. But 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 so but the reason I brought up the judge and the doctor is that it is a serious thing. When you that as it's a funny little English word. Um, but what it's saying is I, what I'm doing now is I'm representing a position of authority. So speaking as your doctor, I don't think you should go to the wedding speaking as your friend. I think you should go to the wedding speaking as a judge, not guilty, but speaking in my private capacity. I think that guy's guilty of sin. Yeah. You're saying in both cases, you're distinguishing between your position of authority as a doctor. You've got that authority because you've got a degree you've trained You've gone through a mentorship. You've taken an yeah, you're, oath. You're, you're recognizing what you should be doing in particular social roles. Yeah. And and so and I, so I don't want to let go of that thought. Like it really is very important for people in various professions and in various positions. Speaking as a father, speaking as a mother, for example, to a child, you might say, you know, like I get that that prank you played was funny, but speaking as your dad, like you can't. Uh, set someone's toys on fire, on fire just to, or whatever. Yeah. yeah, and I'm going to punish you for that. There's a, there's there's that as is presuming or assuming or highlighting a position of authority, and I just I don't see any authority uh, that comes with race. Uh, people, a lot of it's very popular to think that uh, if you are white, well, it's very popular to think that if you're black. You know what it's like to be someone else who's also black. And I think that's insulting and crazy. Uh, It's less common, but increasing to think that if you're white, you know what it's like to be me. Now, I hardly (laughs) know what it's like to be me. And I think... (laughs) Yeah, that's a a big if true claim. I don't think anyone's (laughs) quite gotten a grasp of Gabrielness. (laughs) Or Nicholasness. Like, like we are such complicated beings. And the flip side of that is that we're also so self-deceiving... I don't even think I'm an authority on myself in some senses. Like there's some things no, that exactly. you might it's, it's the way, know it's about like how a, how a, 
it's exactly like how a wife often knows her husband better than he knows himself or vice versa. Yeah. So there's going to be some things about some particular black individuals' experiences that I've studied very closely that I might know better than them. Like I, like I think I do understand Musi Maimani better than he understands himself. Uh, and and I think that's partially well. Okay, let well, me not also, get into the it's, it's 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 yeah. It's easier it's easier to get a a, a better a grasp of another person if they are also particularly a self deluded character. Yes, if they're especially shallow and self deluded, then it's very easy to get a grip on. <laughs> and very which, sweet, in the case eh? of, which, exactly. Which in the case of Musi, I think is probably true. But that's my impression of him. I think I've only met him twice. And yeah, <laughs> I haven't even he's got met a very him. particular image of himself. But I feel like I know more. Just like, you know, anyway, uh, we have spoken before about, uh, you know, sometimes distance. I mean, this is a point of Malcolm Gladwell's and about Winston Churchill. Like, you know, sometimes it actually helps not to have met a person to be able to know them better than most other people know yeah. them because they get charmed. Uh, yeah, you're and uh, uh, you know that Lord Acton quote about power corrupting and absolute power corrupting absolutely? Mm -hmm. I believe the context of that was he was actually writing about how when someone is powerful, the people around them become corrupted in the sense that they begin to make excuses and uh, uh, and, and and treat them differently from how they would if they weren't corrupt. Uh, and you can see this all the time with movie stars, you know, like we talk about movie stars like, oh, he's actually kind of a, a normal person. Um, and, you know, he's not he's not that abrasive for a movie star. Yeah, uh, or you know, he's just so passionate. That's why he trashed that room and stabbed his ex girlfriend. You know, for a movie kind of star, he sleeps with remarkably few hookers. No. Yeah, he's he's only he's only cheated on his spouse and, and partners like four or five times. That's very low for a, for a movie star. <laughs> and it's so okay. So it's a crazy way of thinking, but it does happen to us all, and we all have to be guardians against it. And I think I so I I want to unpack for me. Uh, how I think of race pride is that I think it's crazy, but I think that it's crazy in a way that a lot of pride is crazy. So taking pride in a group where you are not particularly contributing to the group's performance is always crazy. And it's not always bad. So I'm very proud of having gone to St. Stithians. Nick went to St. Stithians too. We've talked about this. When I see Jared Robinson, an old Saints boy playing in Wimbledon, I'm not only proud as a South African, I'm also proud as a Saints boy for some reason. It's crazy. Frankly, it's crazy because I'm doing nothing to help him, but I feel very proud. I was reflecting on some of the earliest memories of pride that I have when Josiah Teguini and Penny Haynes won gold medals at the Olympics uh, when I was six years old. I can still remember that because I was so moved. I was so proud. They exactly. made me feel so proud to be a South African. We've, it's crazy. We've made, this we've made this point many times before that uh, sports teams, you know, I've never done anything athletic in my life. And yet <laughs> seeing the spring box with the World Cup makes me feel good. Yeah, it's crazy. But it's, it's kind of crazy beautiful. And then there's this idea of taking pride. So, And I'm distinguishing this from pride in your work or pride in your family where you've actually helped like someone become a better person or you've done something very impressive by hard work, then you're taking pride in real accomplishment. I'm talking about where you're just a fanboy. It's crazy. And, and being a fanboy of your race is crazy, but I don't think it's crazy beautiful. Like if you, like, I think the thought that I should 
feel good about myself because Isaac Newton discovered a neat way to describe mechanical laws or because Socrates asked clever questions or because Julius Caesar dominated the French or whatever. Like it, it leaves me cold. Like I don't, it doesn't make me feel good about myself. And it also feels kind of repulsive if someone tries to make me feel either proud or ashamed. Like Stalin was well, awful. I'd, one, and he was one white the, and I'm white. I'd, exactly. And, and one of the crazy to me. Uh, one of the added problems with this is that it's also such a wide group. I mean, can you imagine if you sat at home and every time you saw a human being do something, you felt a genuine sense of like great pride and and like happiness welling up within you saying, ah, oh, look, us humans, we're really great people. And of course, some people do that, right? When they see like a rocket going to space or something. But imagine no, that that no, was your okay. whole life, that this was your whole oh. identity. You identified as a human being. <laughs> what an empty, vapid life one would live. And race no, is like... The next biggest uh, uh, no, category, dude, the, basically, the, after that. No, dude, the next biggest category is gender. And there oh, yeah, are some gender, people who are like, every time a man does well, I must feel good as a man. Or every time a woman yeah. does well, like, my fiancé must feel good as a woman because some other woman uh, did something amazing. Oh. Yeah, cured, cured a kind of cancel or something. It is, it is, it is a kind of silliness. Um, but you were saying... But, this, but the thing is, it's also very energizing. Like, uh, I I don't have the numbers at my fingertips, but if you look at the amount of money that sports makes through merchandising, through selling tokens of pride, collective pride, shirts, bandanas, so on, it's huge. I think it's more than sports makes through ticket sales. Uh, it's right. it's definitely larger than the South African GDP. I can remember that much. Um, yeah. So uh, it's a hugely uh, energizing way of getting people together. And if you look through history, at times religion was used as that kind of thing and you had religious wars. At times nationalism becomes that kind of thing and you get nationalist wars. So here's my question to you, Nick. It seems to me like the DA's non-racialist policy, they've made the claim, look, at the level of law, when we're putting on that hat, we don't want to discriminate according to race. We want to discriminate according to who's poor and who's rich when we're giving out uh, 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 tools for self-upliftment and we are going to be doing redress in that way but they're taking another step which is to say we really want to deconstruct the idea of race we don't want people to be taking pride in their race we don't want that to be an identity identity that defines your sense of self-worth that defines your who you think is appropriate to hang around with what kinds of behaviors you think are appropriate to take on. And that seems to be where Action SA has a different take. They're like, you must see us as black people. You must see us yes. as belonging to this group. You must see our success as being representative. This is like the Springboks winning for all South Africans. When black people do well, that's good for all black people, and they must all cheer together. That seem, And we must right. all be, and, and my money's part of it, and he says I'm proud to be black. I don't know what he feels proud about, but... Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, there, there, there's a unit which is so much larger than him that he's hardly contributing to its betterment. So it seems like a fanboy pride to me. And that's why I think it's crazy. But, but like I've also said, I don't think it's crazy good. I think it's crazy bad. But I do think politically, the question is, do you think they have the winning combination here of non-racialism in the law, but racialism in the culture war? It's a difficult question. Because I think, you know, fundamentally, a lot of 
uh, of sort of basic programming that human beings come with is to uh, attach ourselves to some sort of tribal identity and then organize around that principle. And this is sort of from when we lived as bands of hunter-gatherers roaming the planet. And I think that's why that particular approach to politics of, you know, that we need to take pride in our tribe, in this case, our race, is is quite a powerful one. Um, but I think, though, that, you know, of course, these identities are quite sort of, uh, yeah, this sounds very social science-y, but they are sort of constructed. And in, in that sense, I think you might be, so on paper, I would say they do maybe have the better the better way of doing it. But if you actually think about how what could come out of the DA's version, so the DA is effectively proposing an alternative way of kind of people organizing, organizing around the principle of non-racialism. That is actually your identity. You know, identify as a non-racialist um, as yeah, opposed I'm, to identify as being black. I'm, I'm actually proud to or, be a non-racialist. I'm proud to see through race to exactly. through content of character. Or I identify as a South African. Um, which is another another possibility, uh, and and that and South African means someone who believes in, you know, hard work and tolerance of people of multiple races and you know whatever whatever, um, and that actually can become a very intoxicating, powerful identity as well. And the the United States has at times uh, fully embraced that version of itself, and that has made it very strong sometimes because it can draw from a lot of different places. It's a very wide, encompassing identity that anyone can buy into simply by choice, unlike blackness, which is like something you're either an ally of or part of, but you can't opt into. You can't wake up tomorrow and say, well, I'm and black you, uh, or I'm You definitely white. can't opt out of. If you, if, if, exactly. if you are seeking obesity and you uh, sort of talk against race-based policy, then you're a... Uh, you're a traitor. Yeah, that's yeah. what else. I mean, there's, the there's much nicer much nicer. Yes, words. exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, which we shall not shall not sully our podcast with. Um, in this case, although not that I'm averse to swearing, but those are such ugly, ugly terms. I think because they're used so in such a petty way uh, in modern politics, anyway. Yeah, yeah. So okay, but so I like what you're saying because it kind of anticipates my next question, which is, you see, I think I think the only problem with non-racialism is that it's negative. It's negatively defined. In other right. words, it's defined as here's here's an identity that I don't take pride or shame in. It's a category error to to try and pin pride or shame on me on the basis of my race. Uh, I think I don't think that's a I don't I really don't think that's a winning message in and of itself. I, I think that uh, negatively defined groups um, are often the worst kinds of groups because. They fall very easily into the trap of this of this nasty kind of us them thinking where it's like everything about them is bad and everything about us is good. And by the way, there's some good things about race pride in the past. Like during apartheid, it's, it's black consciousness. It's it's you know Steve Biko's commemoration week. I think he died around this time. And uh, when black people were being shamed uh, on the basis of the color of their skin, and you needed to coordinate a political movement in order to bring about a change in the legal system so that you could achieve equality in the eyes of the law. Uh, yeah. Where the law's eyes, in this sense, can be blinded. Like, you know, this is not Oedipus. This is just like we're not looking into race. Um, I think it was useful after some negotiations hadn't worked, and in particular after the ANC had fallen into Moscow's clutches, to try and say, well, here's another way we can get our act together. 
And it's by just sort of saying, dude, you know, you can't be a free rider on the system that oppresses black people as a, as a, as a black policeman and feel like you're okay. Like we, we are kind of all in this together. I think that was useful. Um, it's, it's, it's not all bad. I think that phase is over. Um, it's good to remember the history. Uh, so I think that non-racialism for it to be a winning message, you have to say, what are the things, what are the units where it might be crazy to take pride in it, but it's crazy beautiful. Yes. And you, um, you already I, said South Africa. Being yeah. a South African, it's crazy beautiful. This country African. has a crazy beautiful history. Being your religion. If you if you're a right. Christian or a Muslim or a Jew, dude, that's not a race. And that is something you can opt out of, you can opt into. It's about beliefs, it's about practices. Uh, it's a choice. Right. It's Culture. About, it's I think the biggest one, the biggest one for the DA, and this is a huge huge issue and it's such a missed opportunity over the last 25 years is to is 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 this idea of black culture because i think if if my money was pressed on the question of like what do you feel proud of when you say you're proud to be black he would say i'm proud of black culture and i have no idea what people really mean when they talk about black culture likewise i have no I idea what people i don't think anyone knows like, right these, I have, are, these I, are big blobs i've hung out with my friends from Ethiopia in Little Addis and from Congo in Yeovil. And dude, no one laughs harder at the idea of black culture than those guys. They're like, what is it exactly that you think we have in common with like either the most sophisticated, either with the Motsepes and the Ramaposas or the most rural Zulus and Kosas? Like we, we pray to different gods. We have different ways of doing marriage. We have different ways of thinking about yeah, like, family structure, like matrilineal about, societies, patrilineal societies, different what, music, different cuisine. What is there in common? Yeah, what is it that connects a uh, black American who grew up in a suburb outside of, you know, uh, I don't know, Chicago or something? Um, as opposed, uh, What connects them with someone who grew up in a small village herding cattle and uh, walking to school in rural KZN? There's very little of that experience that's joined. And yet yeah, both are... Yeah. Part of black culture. Well, I'll allegedly. tell you what, what, when I asked this question in America, when I was at a very good university with smart people, I'd say, what is black culture? And they said, no, it's like, it's the, the, the common theme is oppression by white people. And this is why I mentioned the Ethiopians. And I also went to university with some Ethiopians. They're like, dude, we were not colonized. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you guys are denigrating our history, man. We... We like the worst that happened is we it was we had a minor invasion by the Italians and we beat them back, and uh, and and we had like a divine monarch, uh, monarchic system ruling us all the way through the twentieth century from like the seven sixteenth century, uh, and, and then the from there we, yeah, we oscillated between sort of forms of communism, fascism, and and race nationalism that really has nothing to do with whiteness, the Tigris versus the Omahara, and so on. Uh, yeah, they're it's like very, you, it's very you guys have no idea so, who we are and yet you're presuming to talk about us because of the color of our skin exactly like f you it's it's it's, it's defining the entirety of like uh, of, of blackness by a particular trauma experienced by people long ago visited on them by another group of people long ago it's it's like as though of all the conquests invasions and in, in all of human history the only important one is when the Europeans yeah. landed in Africa in the 1500s or whatever, or whenever they draw it from. But that's also part of the problem is that, you know, there's so many that it's difficult to draw one from. Um, yeah. Mfekane doesn't matter. Nontrawuse doesn't matter. 
World War One, World War Two, they don't matter when white people were killing each other. That was just a, an aberration. Like it's a crazy view. So, but okay, but so the thing is, I'm being negative again. Like black culture, it doesn't make sense to me. But here's what does make sense to me: Zulu culture makes sense to me. Like I, I understand Zulu refers to a language. I understand it refers to a kingdom. Not everyone who speaks the language is part of the kingdom. Not everyone who's in the kingdom even speaks the language as fluently as they speak other languages. Uh, another issue is the culture. And there are a lot of people who speak Zulu who do not ascribe to Zulu culture. They've learned Zulu in the mining right. houses or in cities or at high school, like a lot of my friends, white and black and colored and Indian. Like there is a particular thing about Zulu culture. There's, there's, there's a set of norms and traditions that are specifiable enough that you can make sense of what is Zulu culture. And you can say, well, what is Zulu culture and what is Tosa culture? And you can see that there are similarities and there are differences. And Pedi and Venda and so on, you, you, you can go through the list like that. And of course, those cultures are primarily defined in a rural context. And you've got this other thing going on in the cities. And one of the great tragedies and the missed opportunities is to define South African urban culture. And this is why I was so keen on, on going after the glitterati, uh, even if they did sometimes have uh, debaucherous cocaine parties that I never participated in, uh, <laughs> excepting as a voyeur, <laughs> was, was that there is something, you know, there are tastemakers in this country that really are trying to uh, do a great job of redefining new fashions, new cuisines, new forms of music. And by the way, you know, like a lot of since I was a little kid, a lot of that music was defined by blending technologies and sounds from across the globe. Uh, strings, right? This is with heavy drum beats with lyrics. This is traditionally, that how are, cultures innovate and produce things, right? Is they take stuff from other places and other ideas or new ideas that are made up by the people in that culture, and they blend them together to create new things. But South African urban culture, which is why, this is, which just on a on a tangent, which is why cultural appropriation as a as a, a accusation and insult is so stupid. But anyway, carry on. So stupid. But this is the thing: we have such strong culture in in this country. We've got such we've dude. This is a, a flippant tasty place to live. Like the one good thing about this country, I would say, is how tasty it is. If you drive around, yesterday I went for a walk through Hillbrow. Uh, three days before that, I was in Rosebank. Uh, before that, I was in Santon, like quite different in some ways. But like in each case, I saw things that I wouldn't see if I was in, right. even if I was in New York, which is like a cultural bastion of, of, of the planet. We have we have a very rich culture here in South Africa. It's, it's a very interesting thing going on. But no one, tell me one person who celebrates South African urban culture, something that is not defined by race, that's defined by... By this, the faint, by this melting pot sensibility. Yeah, I don't know. I think there's a sort of faint sensibility that you get from it in like a, a castle ad or like a, that stereotypical image of, of a group of people uh, around a bride. But really, it's not well developed and it's certainly not particularly embraced by many of our tastemakers. Well, yeah, yeah the, the ones with, with uh, who, 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 who tastemakers in the sense that they... They're running the media scene rather than actually making up new good stuff. I agree with you there. Right. Anyway, so my thought is that the DA, I think the DA is going to lose unless it pitches quite hard, both against the idea of being proud of your race. I, d I don't think it's going to get away without doing that. I I'm not saying now. In the next year, maybe they want to focus on 
non-racialism in the eyes of the law and policy and their experience and administration and so on. But I think if they want to, if they, if 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 non-racialism is going to win the bigger battle of ideas, I think it has to be about saying, I think it has to be about convincing South Africans, who, by the way, our research shows, are mostly committed yeah. to the idea that you're defined by the content of your character, exactly, uh, and, and many of whom are religious and have all kinds of ways of of of, of finding identities that are deeper. Than, this, than than your phenotype, but if we don't, if if, if that is not explicitly advertised, yeah. then I think the only guys selling a winning cultural brand are going to be uh, Action SA, who are selling the same story as the EFF and the ANC, which is that you know there's this great vulnerability of blackness. Like if you, if you put up a shampoo ad that isn't, uh, you know, it says white women's we have hair, to all fine tear and our flat, hair it's off, ugly. Yeah. But uh, it, it didn't say fine and flat and very, very ugly. You know, it wasn't strict, harsh enough on the white women. We have to tear our hair up. That's a good pun, Nick. I don't want to overlook that. <laughs> but but, it, but but there, the media players, the, the major editors, news publishers, and the all of the political parties basically outside the DA and a little bit cope uh, are all singing the same song, which is you should be proud of your race. And I, and I think that the policy battle is not going to be won without that cultural battle also being won. And I think it's got to have a bit of a negative element, which is to say, yeah. look, it's crazy to be proud of your race. We're not saying it's totally bad. Like there was historically good reasons to do it. And it's always crazy to kind of be proud of a group that you're not really contributing to in a major telling way. But it's it's crazy ugly. And there's a crazy beautiful so, so here's, thing here's to commit yourself to. And they have to sell those options. Yeah. Here's, here's what I think they need to do. They need to define yeah. their voter base as a as the, the party of decency. They need to define non-racialism as the thing that decent people do. They need to define people who vote for them and support their policies as the decent thing. And, they, and you know, uh, this is what I think most South Africans do aspire to be what they consider decent. You know, uh, you, you bring in all these values. You say people who are hardworking, who care about others, who don't want to tear down others who want to build themselves up who are good people who are charitable people these are the people who should support us these are the people who should vote for us and this is what it means to be a south african and i think that's probably the way to go if they want to build a, co a electoral coalition that will be able to truly unseat the anc and change the way that the country operates in a fundamental way you need to create a, a, an identity around uh, decentness hard work um, and non-racialism, of course. Yeah, I like that. I think uh, it, that seems, and it, it, it also it also appeals to the sort of innate conservatism of many South Africans, who you know they they quite like law and order, they quite like uh, religion. All these things are very important to the majority of South Africans. Um, uh, this is what our surveys show, uh, and yet, you know, uh, the parties that represent most South Africans. If they might, you know, the ANC is very good at paying lip service to kind of good old-fashioned church decency stuff. You know, they bring church stuff into their into their uh, rallies often, and they they talk about like respect and things like that. But you know, in practice, there's very little of that that actually goes on. And I think uh, the DA is missing a trick, perhaps, if it doesn't try and capture that sentiment within the country uh, to swing people behind it. You see, I think. I think I think that's very good, but I think you want to add some razzmatazz. And the razzmatazz is this. 
the world has become so weird that if you are proud of not judging other people on the color of their skin and you are proud of being part of a team that wants to change laws and wants to change systems so that people are not judging each other on the color of their skin, then you are weird. And I think you are weird in a very cool way. I think that is, I think, I think it's globally unusual. I, so don't get me wrong. I think most people around the world are decent in exactly the way that you've just defined. But I think right. most people around the world have been cowed by huge well, dislocations so, so you, in, in the public sphere. And, and so it's become like a very timid point. And I think that, that, that non-racialists, particularly in South Africa, should say this is one of the hardest places in the world to be a non-racialist. It is so hard that this week is the first week almost in my lifetime that the, at least the second biggest political party has firmly affirmed that position. Like it's so fringe that you couldn't right. even find it in the in the in the but major I debate. Think, I think this does actually feed into the the idea of decency, right? Because no one thinks of being like the sort of moral upstanding person in your community as being a, an easy thing to do. And and it's a it's a weird intersection of kind of cult, counterculture, really. What you're saying uh, with, with yeah. like Dude, it's kind of old fashioned to, way of looking at the to world. Be decent it's like countercultural. It's like those people on university campuses in America, you know, while everyone's having casual sex and, you know, like promoting abortion and things like that, they dress up in a suit before every lecture and they become hectically Christian <laughs> to show that they're different from everyone, right? It's like counterculture by doing, well, you know, uh, by becoming a conservative. By which getting is, the uh, basics right. But I, exactly. you, know, but you, see, you see, I don't even want to class it as conservative or progressive. I just want to class, I, I want to stick to decency. I think it's just... It's just human. It's like the world has gotten right. so complicated that we have forgotten. We've gotten into such a deep epistemology game. Like I, when I watch CNN and Al Jazeera and Fox News, I just see so many people trying so hard to forget what actually makes sense in order to make clicks. That, yes. <laughs> that I feel a hunger that I think so many South Africans would feel if, if super mainstream people were... We're tapping into it to just say, you know what? I know it's weird. I know many uh, people with big followings are going to say that I'm awful for pointing this out. But like, frankly, the fact that someone else of the same race as me has accomplished something good or bad doesn't make me feel proud or ashamed. And I'm proud of that fact. Like I have figured something out about the human condition that my being is not inextricably connected to that person's being by way right. of phenotype. If it is connected, it's by way of us both being human beings or it's by way of us both belonging to the same country or the same body politic. Like there's all kinds of ways we can care about belonging to the same country and we can care about belonging to the same party and all that kind of stuff. But, but saying, I really don't care that we're in the same race. Nick, I want to start by saying this to you. I don't give a yes. damn that you're the same race as me. And I think that's weird. Uh, I think that's a weird thing to say. It's a weird thing to have to say. But I feel like South African politics has driven me to the point where I have to point out, I do not give a damn. And, and, uh, and I think it's kind of fun. It's kind of liberating yeah. to, I, to realize. I, like, I'd like to echo we, that sentiment by saying that I care far more that you have a magnificent beard than that uh, 
you are the yes. same phenotype as me. <laughs> yes. And before anyone thinks that ah, only certain races get magnificent beards, I will I will strongly disagree with you there, sir, because yeah. there are some fantastic beards around the world from people of all nations and cultures. Yeah, and, we will uh, meet. We will meme with anyone who comes after us. With <laughs> right, oh so I think God, we're you. we're we're approaching yeah. the end of end of things here. Um, what? How do you want to wrap this up? I don't know. I think I kind of want to encourage our listeners. I, I'm, you know, we've got some international listeners, but especially for the South African ones, like this is this is. What we are going through right now is historic. Uh, The GDP numbers came out and, uh, you know, on an annualized basis, it said we were down 51%. And then a lot of people were quick to point out, no, but on a quarter quarter basis, we're only down 16%. So the 51% is an exaggeration. I went and looked back on our (laughs) growth trajectory from 2000, from 1999 to 2009. And 2009 was a dip. So it's taking into account the global financial crisis. If Mm. we'd stuck on that trajectory, our economy would be twice as big as it is today. If we didn't have Zuma and the ramification of BEE as a fig leaf to uh, smokescreen, cater deployment, the the, the, the complete hollowing out, to to, to steal everything that could move, uh, we would have had an economy that we would have been twice as rich as we are now. And if we had that, we could be doing twice as much good to uh, to 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 deal with st- stupid problems that we have, like uh, flipping, banning cigarettes and nicotine, and shutting down every business that that trades online out of spite and all that kind of stuff. But also really important problems, like 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 literally tens of millions of South Africans who who haven't had a good enough education to be able to contribute in a modern economy in a way that's going to make them feel decent because it really is like if you think about your life it's not a party like one of the things we have to get in get into all of us as human beings in this life is like ways to improve other people to help other people out uh, through work improve their lives offer a good or a service and you get the reward and 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 we could have been twice as far ahead as we are today and and it's miserable it's flipping miserable and i see it when i go out and i see extra beggars yeah. and it's it's flipping can, desperate out there you can really feel it now um everyone is and the media and space Mboweni is compounding. Just, yeah, M- yeah Mboweni has just said that we're gonna what was government's original projections which gonna shrink by seven percent he says that that's wrong and they're going to adjust it it's going to be worse than that um which is yeah. i think what we all expected because we know the treasury is always overly optimistic but uh yeah it, that they're moving that already shows that it's going to be quite something so this is a um, nightmare, and 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 the mainstream media is trying to drive us further down the hole, by 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 right. by pretending they don't know what non-racialism means, by pretending that if you against BE that means you think black people are incompetent because of the color of your skin. Bullshit, bullshit. Yeah, most exactly. of the most competent people in this country are not white. Uh, it's a crazy thought. The problem is the incentives that are set up by this thing, and 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 right now. We live in interesting times. You live inside of a Chinese curse. This is this is like one of the most <laughs> awful things that a human being can go through is a lifetime in South Africa. Like after after 15 years of this slow economic catastrophe c- collapse, we've had a full-on c- calamity, 
and 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 the the people that are in charge are looking the wrong way. It's awful. Right. And this is the time to think and to be excited about the possibilities of going forward and to and to be very excited about the possibility that right. the dummies have so ruined magnificently proven their incompetence. Right. That a new idea gets to take hold. At no, which exactly. point a podcast like this one can focus on talking about <laughs> engineering feats and nuclear fusion and what's hip and happening in the art scene and what's the greatest like album to be listening to the whole 60 minutes like th that could happen we could we 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 could get through this uh, when people it's, it's don't care to, yeah when people don't really care who the freaking president is then or, or what party is in in power uh, as much as they do now will be in a much better place um but because right now people have to care and you really have to care because this yeah. is this is this is like this is not rock bottom this is just oh, a no. condition of rock bottom. <laughs> if yeah. you want if you want to know how communism uh, if you want to know how Let's, vladimir Ilyich yeah. lenin took Moscow took the largest country on the planet with an army of about three and a half thousand people, shall we say. I mean, the movie that they made in the Soviet Union about the the October Revolution, literally more people died making the movie than in the actual <laughs> revolution because yes. it is so easy to do. Because by that stage, Russia had been in decline for a century. And then there was World War One, and then there was the Spanish flu. Okay. This is like the yeah. situation South Africa is in today. This is not rock bottom. Once once Russia hit that point in 1918, it had another 60. It had another 80. Yeah, it had, it had it had famine and Stalin to go through still. <laughs> had, and Hitler, like existential threats from outside and as Hitler well. Too. <laughs> 80 million so, people had to die, and that's just counting the people that were killed. Like so this we is need a way this for, is not for, rock bottom. This is just right. this is just the edge of the cliff. This is finally this is, the edge of the cliff. This is, this and is it's the, a very exciting time. Jump off and fly exactly. or, or, or ignore it and collapse. Precisely. If we, uh, if we manage to grow wings, um, which I think many of us listening to this podcast hopefully are trying to do in their own way, uh, then we may recover. And if we don't, well, I'll... <laughs> well it's on the record. Well, no one is yes. surprised. Like the we'll only change our, we'll, the, we'll, we'll change our topics to how to find food in various uh, garbage cans. <laughs> yes. Which, by the way, I did. I, I was I was homeless and starving for a while, so I, I can give you some tips. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, well, this podcast will continue to provide you with that insight. Um, anyway, we are just over an hour now, so let's do some recommendations. I'll start. Uh, I have been watching the older episodes of The Simpsons. Now, I'm sure everyone's seen The Simpsons, um, or if you haven't, you've heard of them. And I think a lot of people have forgotten, you know, there's this online sort of cult around the episodes, sort of seasons five to nine, I think it is, of The Simpsons. And I kind of didn't really understand it because I'd seen a lot of those episodes when I was like eight or something like that, right? And I never really kind of bought the hype. I thought it was always just nostalgia. But I've gone back and I, youth. <laughs> I went back and I went back and watched them. And they are really great. And it's quite funny if you look at what the show has become now, which is sort of just another one of these kind of vaguely woke, slightly boring 
kind of pop culture reference machines, uh, which is what it is today, and how it used to be this, uh, for the 90s, properly edgy, and also cover sort of themes and topics that today would get you excommunicated from the uh, from the sort of well-heeled, sensible, uh, woke elite that dominates so much of, of, of modern pop culture. So I'd recommend go back and watch watch some of those older Simpsons episodes. They are pretty good. Um, I enjoy them thoroughly, and they have interesting things to say about society. Although there are a lot of references to people who are no longer famous, and so some of it does go over my head. And you know, not being a particularly wise about the world in the '90s when this stuff came out. All right, Gabriel, do you have any recommendations? I like I, no, but I like that kind of thing because then you can keep Google by your side, and <laughs> yes. uh, and Google the names. So I, I want to give two. Uh, one is um, uh, QI, quite interesting. Stephen and, Fry. Uh, uh, yeah, well, so it's, it was it was two people, right? It was Steve. It was initiated by Stephen Fry and a guy called Alan Davies, uh, and he's really the reason that I'm bringing it up. So I love QI. Um, an old high school buddy introduced me to it. He'd been watching it for years, and then he. he, yeah, he my parents and it. I watch it as well. It's, it's great stuff. So one of the strange things about that format is that you've got the 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 nominal host who's like asking the questions and then it became that danish woman who's fabulous whose name i can't remember um and then you've got the four guests but one of the guests is actually also the other host and and that's alan davies and he really does set the tone and he is one of the most magnanimous comedians that i've ever come across there's something so generous he's really great (laughs) comedy is often about being mean in a funny yeah, way. You never, you never hate him. He's just, he's just lovely. He, he, he's lovely. So he just published. Uh, so he's written two books. Uh, his first book was about his life as a teenager, and it's like very, you know, pop reference. Uh, you know, fun, fun, making your way into the comedy scene and so on. Uh, but his second book is quite heavy. I haven't read it. I've just read a couple of reviews. Um, it's called Just Ignore Him. And it's about his earlier life. So when he was six years old, his mother died of leukemia. And soon after that, his father started molesting him, uh, sexually abusing him very harshly. And it's sort of something that he sat on his whole life. Uh, I think he was abused until he was about 13 years old, repeatedly and and in a nasty way, and his father kind of turned his siblings against him. No one knew, but he, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. It just sounds like one of the harshest, um, just one of the harshest childhood stories. That come out of, yeah. And, and, and I think there's something really amazing about the fact that he's not telling the story to make his name. Like, his career has peaked. Like, he has done, you can't ask to yeah. do better than he's done. Uh, so he's not trying to make a name for himself. Uh, as far as I can tell, he really is just trying to tell a story of tribulation, of trauma, of proper, full-on trauma, of overcoming it, and of 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 much later sharing it in a in a non-profiteering kind of way to 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 to, to sort of help other people therapeutically. And I think that's amazing. Um, and I read a little bit of an extract of it and it's just, it just seems, I, I don't know. It, it really moved me. It really touched me like at a very deep level. 
and uh, sure, I've I've got a lot of respect for that guy. And and then after that, I watched a couple more episodes, and he's he's still just as funny, you know, and and just yeah, oh, man, so sweet, so sweet. So no, definitely. So that's that. it. so. But I don't want to finish on a heavy note. On a light note, it's my fiance's birthday. Well, happy birthday to her then, uh, Gabriel. I think we have just lost you. What a what a what an unfortunate time for him to cut out. Anyway, uh, I think we'll call it to a close there. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, we shall see you on the next episode of Two Crickets and a Thorn Tree, which will come out, of course, next week. And have a wonderful week, everyone. We'll catch you around. Keep that flag of liberty flying.